0: Please to open your Bible to Matthew 8. Good morning, Grace Church. We've been making our way as a church through the Gospel of Matthew, and Matthew has been presenting Jesus Christ as the Messiah who has brought God's kingdom to this earth. Over the last several months, we made our way through the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5-7, through 7, where Jesus is teaching about what life in His kingdom looks like. And Matthew concludes that section with this observation in verses 28 and 29 of chapter 7. And when when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. So the big takeaway from this Sermon on the Mount was not Jesus' wisdom or his knowledge, although he had a lot of wisdom and knowledge, but his authority. And then from here, beginning in Matthew 8, the writer turns to display Jesus' power and authority through a series of miracles that Jesus performs. A few weeks ago, Larry brought us to Matthew 8, verses 1 through 4, and we saw Jesus, his power and authority on display as he heals a leper. Here was a man who, who could not be touched because of his disease, and here in his mercy, Jesus stretches out his hand. And touches this man. And now in Matthew 8, beginning in verse 5, Matthew transitions to Capernaum. And Capernaum was this seaside town of around 1,500 people on the Sea of Galilee. And it was this place that was the the base of operations for Jesus. And it was also the home of, of Peter and Andrew. And so with this as, as just the backdrop, let us look together at the Word of God, His inerrant, inspired, infallible, sufficient Word for us. Matthew 8, being in verse 5, and am going to read verse 13. When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority, with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. Thanks be to God for His Word. Would you pray with me? Father, thank You for being a God who speaks. You speak to us and You give us knowledge of Yourself through Your Word. You are are a God who dwells in unapproachable light, yet we can approach You in Your mercy through the revelation You have shown us in Jesus Christ. And Lord, would Your Holy Spirit uh, be with us this morning as we look to your word. As we look to you, open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things out of your law this morning. Lord, give us humble and contrite hearts that that are conformed to your word this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Surprises. Who likes surprises? I see a lot of kids' hands going up. I like that. Some adults. I know one person who doesn't like surprises, and that's my wife. My wife is not a fan of surprises. Fifteen years of marriage, I've one thing I've figured out. She's not a big fan of surprises. She likes to know what's going to happen, when it's going to happen. And as time has gone on, I've, I've realized, I used to think I really like surprises, but as I get older, I've realized I'm more like 50-50 on surprises. Because if it's a good thing, like, that's pretty, that's, I'm okay with that. Surprise me with something really good. Like, oh wow, I opened the freezer and there is that ice cream that I didn't even know I had. That's a great surprise. But like when I get a text from Brandon Averill on Friday saying he's going to the hospital because he can't remember anything that happened this morning, that's not a surprise that I'm very happy to receive. Surprises when they're when they bring something unexpectedly good, good thing, unexpectedly bad, bad thing. And this morning, as we look to this text together, we encounter a story that's filled with surprises. Now, I, I think we're mostly familiar with this story. We're familiar with this narrative, and so it doesn't seem that surprising to us. But the reality is, this story is just simply surprising at every turn. Every phrase contains something that's unexpected, something to be stunned by. And so we're going to walk through this narrative phrase by phrase, And we're going to notice seven surprises together. So if you like surprises, this is really good news for you. And if you don't like surprises, it should be good news because what we're going to be surprised by is actually good stuff. So surprise number one is a centurion comes to Jesus. Now this should surprise us. Verse 5 begins, When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him. Now a centurion, we don't use that word a lot in in, uh, modern day america but a centurion was a military officer in the roman army kind of like a captain would have been and they would lead units of around 100 men i mean theoretically it was 100 men but that wasn't necessarily the case and they were really the the backbone of the army army as one commentator described they were the officers who actually went out with their men and carried out the missions that they were given by their superiors and the centurion we meet here in Matthew 8, he was probably the, the senior official in Capernaum, the senior Roman official in this little seaside town. So he was a man who had some power and authority as this Roman army occupied this region. Now we know a couple more things about this centurion in particular from Luke's account of the same story. Luke tells this story in Luke 7. While we know he was not a Jew, this centurion was not a Jew, this centurion was an honorable man. He was somebody that, that Jews looked up to. Uh, the, and we also know that he seemed to love the Jewish people. He even built them a synagogue in Capernaum. But this centurion, even though he has all this power, this authority, this social standing in his community, he has a problem. This problem is in the sickness, the paralyzation of his servant. This this servant was probably his his personal Abe, his personal aid, not his personal Abe. Although I wouldn't mind having a personal Abe, but this was his personal aid, and he is sick and suffering. And verse six talks about him being him being paralyzed, making clear that there was no medical hope for him. Dr. Mays could do nothing for this servant. And this weighs on the centurion. Not only does he care about his servant and hates to see him suffering, but he's also concerned about his ability to carry out his responsibilities without the help of this aid. It's kind of like if if Nora, if this was Nora, Larry and I would be in dire straits. And we would be concerned. We would certainly be concerned for her or more concerned for her, but we'd also be concerned for ourselves. But then the centurion, amidst this trouble, he hears of a man. He hears of this man who speaks like no other man. And he's doing things that that no other man has ever done. And great crowds are following this guy as he teaches his wisdom and as he heals the afflictions of the people. Now, in this seaside town, word travels fast. Remember, only 1,500 people. Everybody kind of knows everybody. And now this man, this Jesus, he is here. He's in Capernaum. Now, the fact that this interaction is even taking place is just is it's remarkable. The centurion... He, Think about this, most powerful guy in in Capernaum. He doesn't approach anyone for anything. He doesn't ask for help for anything. He simply demands things. And it happens. He says, and it is done. But this centurion, the most powerful man in Capernaum, he comes forward appealing to this wandering Jewish carpenter on behalf of his suffering servant. This is stunning. Verse 5 is stunning. And he says, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. That's surprise number one, that the the centurion comes. Surprise number two is that Jesus responds to the centurion. He says this in verse 7, I will come and heal him. Now, in order to understand why this is so surprising, we need to understand the context a little bit better. Not only is the centurion so much superior to Jesus in his cultural context, the centurion, as a non-Jew, is also entirely out of bounds for Jesus. He's entirely unclean. So just as Jesus would have been forbidden from touching the leper at the beginning of chapter 8, so Jesus was forbidden to go into the house of a Gentile. This would make him unclean. And here, through this statement, Jesus brings that tension to the forefront of everyone's mind. This centurion has shockingly appealed for help. And now Jesus has shockingly expressed a willingness to be made unclean in order to help him. But not just that, to heal him. These are two massive surprises and I would, I would like to make more of this being a statement, I will come and heal him. And while there are other scriptures that would speak to that, in this verse, it's not actually clear that Jesus is making some promise that he's going to come and heal him. In the original Greek manuscripts, there's no punctuation. And so based on context, interpreters decide, oh, this is a statement or this is a question. It's probably likely that this is a question. It could be a statement. Either way... It's remarkable what's taking place. Jesus is opening himself up to the possibility of coming and healing this servant in this Gentile's home. So two massive surprises, but wait, there's more. Surprise number three, the centurion's humility. Now rather than jumping on Jesus' Jesus's suggestion to come and heal his servant, the centurion objects and says he is not worthy. This is nuts. Look what he says at the beginning of verse 8. He says, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Let's stop there. Think about what we've just been talking about with this, centur- this centurion. He's, he's this powerful guy, high social standing, social, socially superior to Jesus in every way. Yet he tells this Jewish carpenter, this wandering Jewish carpenter that's just come down from teaching in the wilderness, I'm not worthy for you to come to my house. But it's not just that. It's the respect he is showing to Jesus. We forget that this guy, he represented the Romans. The people who have conquered the Jews, who are occupying this area. And here he is calling one of these conquered people, these conquered Jews, Do you see what he called him? He called him Lord. And through that word, he's just showing, he's he's not making a statement about who he is as God, although we know that Jesus is God. He's making a statement about the fact that this man is superior to him in authority. And then he tells Jesus that his home is not worthy of his presence. In his humility, the centurion recognizes something. He he recognizes this, this unmatched authority of Jesus. So see his humility. Be shocked, surprised at the centurion's humility. Which leads us to a fourth surprise. Surprise number four. The centurion's faith. The centurion finally gets to his request. Notice in verse six, he didn't ask Jesus anything. He just stated the facts of the matter this is what's going on my servant is lying paralyzed suffering terribly no questions no requests in that but now in verse 8 he gets to his request and it's a shocking request a surprising request but only say the word and my servant will be healed only say the word Up to this point, every time Jesus has healed someone, he has been physically present. And Jesus has just opened the door to the possibility of his presence, saying, I will come and heal him. But this centurion understands something about authority and power. That when you truly have it, all you need is a word. When you truly have power and authority, all you need is a word. He demonstrates this in verse 9 by using his own experience of using words to get things done. So he says, I have soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And I say to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. All I have to do is say the word, and it happens. And in the humility of his request, we see something of what the centurion actually believes about Jesus. Jesus. He believes that Jesus has the power and the authority to heal. If this centurion can give orders as a representative of Rome and get things done, then how much more must this be true for this man who stands as a representative of God? The centurion trusts that a word from Jesus, spoken at a distance, is sufficient, is enough. To heal his servant. Such is the power and the authority of Jesus. It's shocking. But a word. But speak a word. And my servant will be healed. Now this brings us to verse 10. Our next surprise. Surprise number five. Surprises at every turn. Surprise number five. Jesus marvels. Verse 10 says this. When Jesus heard this, he marveled. This is God, the one who knows all. And he marveled. Now, there, there are only two times in the Gospels that Jesus is said to have marveled at something. Right here, and in Mark 6.6. 6. And in Mark 6, Jesus is in Nazareth, his hometown, and he is rejected by the people there. And what Mark writes is that Jesus marveled. At their unbelief. He was amazed by it. Stunned by it. Here the object of Jesus' amazement is not unbelief though. It's faith. How much better to be the centurion than to be the people of Nazareth. Jesus says to those around him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. Now where the Jews, they were, they were eagerly awaiting The outward signs that the Messiah was coming and had come. They've been hearing about these their whole lives. They've been talking about them. They've been passing them on from generation to generation. All these signs that they're looking for. They're looking and searching and waiting. But what the centurion is doing is he is seeing and he is trusting. He is trusting the power of God in Jesus Christ. Despite all of the advantages that the Jews would have had in understanding the power of the Messiah, here is a Gentile, a non-Jew, who better grasps just who this Jesus is and is content for him to speak but a word. He doesn't need an outward sign or some symbol of power. So great is his faith in the power of God to heal that the centurion only asks for a word, which speaks to this faith that Jesus marvels at. And this brings us to our sixth surprise, surprise number six, Jesus' teaching. So now there's a little bit of a shift from this interaction between Jesus and the centurion. And now Jesus uses the faith of the centurion as an opportunity to teach his followers certain truths about his kingdom. And we've got to understand something in order to better grasp Jesus' teaching. The hope of the Jewish people culminated in what is often described as a banquet, or we might call it a feast or, or a party. And here there is no suffering, and here there is no lack. No one needs anything because they have everything. The prophet Isaiah, he speaks of this feast that will take place on Mount Zion, and we read about this in Isaiah 25. And listen to these words in Isaiah 25, 6 through 9. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples. What a hope. And it was this hope that sustained the Jews. They endured suffering from their oppressors because this day of victory was still to come. The prophets, as they speak about this salvation, even if you go and read Isaiah 25 in its context, they're also speaking about judgment. The judgment that will come from those who are against God's people. This was their hope. The oppressors are going to be judged. The people of God will dwell with God and be victorious. All throughout the year, the the Jews thought about this day. The various feasts they celebrated, they were in in anticipation of this day. And even in the midst of exile, even in the midst of dwelling in a land that's been conquered by the Roman army, they had the hope of a banquet where the people of God, the Jewish people of God, would be gathered together And Psalm 107 and a couple places in Isaiah talks about how these people are going to be gathered from the east and the west, from the north and the south, gathered together for this great feast. And it was a very Jewish hope. We we have to grasp that. This was the hope of the Jewish people. And here, in Matthew 8, 11 and 12, Jesus takes this Jewish teaching, these Jewish promises... And he applies them to Gentiles, the non-Jews. And his mission is to gather to himself a people where, me, where race and ethnicity, they're irrelevant. Where belonging to God's kingdom depends upon faith. Now the Jews, they had the ancestry. They had the right practices they saw themselves as sons of the kingdom. They were destined for something as sons of the kingdom. But Jesus pulls the curtain back here on this hope and says, if, this, if that's all your hope is, if it's just tied to your, what you do, tied to who you are, you are deceived. Because these people who see themselves as sons of the kingdom, they will be thrown into the outer darkness In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now this is set in contrast to to God's kingdom of light. This is not just thrown into darkness, but into outer darkness. Like this is as far away from the light as you can get. It's a place of sorrow and suffering. And the people who are thrown into this outer darkness, notice, they're those who are in their context, they're, they're the good people. They're the seemingly religious people. They have the right parents. They go to church. They know the right answers. But the great difference between them and those brought to this banquet, this wedding feast of the Lamb, is faith. All throughout Matthew, Jesus has been teaching that it is not that we do or say the right things, that ensures that we get to go to this banquet. What matters is that we believe the right things. And then certainly when we believe the right things, we will live a certain way. But the one must precede the other. Jesus' message is the same here as it was throughout the Sermon on the Mount. It's It's about our hearts. Now after this brief teaching, Jesus turns back to the centurion, and here we see surprise number seven. Jesus heals the servant... With a word. Now for us, it's easy to say, well, of course he does. I mean, Jesus is God. That's what he does. He heals people. But, I mean, um, put yourself there for a moment. And just as an eyewitness, witnessing what's going on. Jesus said, go. Let it be done for you as you have believed. And Matthew records that the servant was healed at that very moment. What? Jesus doesn't go to the servant. He doesn't touch the servant. He doesn't even address the servant. He simply says that the servant has been healed. Such is the power of the Word of God. This is the God who speaks and there is light. The God who speaks and there are planets. The God who speaks and there are animals and birds. I'm going to throw out a big word here. His word is efficacious. Efficacious, meaning that it always does what God wants it to do. It's always effective. It never fails. Isaiah likens this to to the rain and the snow coming down from heaven and not going back up, but watering the earth. He says, so shall God's word be that goes out from his mouth. It shall not return to him empty, but it shall accomplish that which he purposes, and shall succeed in the thing for which he sends it. And that's exactly what happens here. Jesus speaks, and the servant is healed. That's shocking. And it's important to recognize that Jesus didn't do this because of the man's faith, it's not because the man had faith in, okay, now I will heal your servant. He didn't do it in accordance with his faith. It's because you asked the right thing, now I'm going to heal your servant. No, Jesus did this because he is a gracious and merciful God. And what the centurion expected, Jesus is eager to do. So it was done. Now, what do we do with all of this? We've walked through this text. We've looked at these seven surprises. We've seen this story to be remarkable. But it's not enough to simply be amazed To go home thinking, man, isn't God great? And that's it. We certainly should think that he's great. But God gives us his word, not just as information, but for transformation. Just recognizing and acknowledging God's power is not enough. It must do something in us. We don't just learn when we encounter God's word. We must be changed by God's word. In other words... Things must follow when we hear God's words. Then the things that follow are things like obedience and dependence and trust and contentment and faith. And that's what this story should produce in us. It should produce in us faith. The centurion had faith. He was persuaded that Jesus had the power and the authority to do exactly what He pleased. Do you have that faith? Faith is a humble and confident trust in the power and the authority of God. The centurion had this faith, so he came to Christ in his need. Think for a moment, if you uh, think about how much a, a good and wealthy person delights in giving. So somebody who's good and wealthy, they've got all kinds of means, all kinds of resources. They delight in giving, whether it be to a charity or to their children or to a friend. They delight in giving because they delight in seeing the joy that comes as they give. As parents, we feel the same, the same way, the same joy as we give. Now, if sinful people experience that joy from being generous, how much more so for God? Christ is a heart full of grace, full of grace, and he invites us to come. With him, there is no lack. He's the greatest treasure of our longing souls, and he invites us to come. Now, this story should prompt us to come, but it should also prompt us with a question. And the question is this, when you come to Jesus for help, Are you coming as one who sees themselves as worthy or unworthy? Do you see yourself as someone who is owed something or deserves nothing? It's an important question for us to consider. As we come to God in our need, do we see ourselves as someone who is owed something or deserving nothing? Now, the Jews, they saw themselves as worthy and deserving. It's actually interesting. In, in Luke 7, uh, Luke tells the story in a different way. They, they share the same facts, but they have theological points behind what they're presenting. And what Luke presents is the centurion sending a group of Jewish elders on his behalf to Jesus first. And these Jewish elders come to Jesus and tell Jesus that this guy is a worthy man. You should heal his servant. They thought... That it was his status, his standing, his goodness that made him one who could receive this, this benefit, this blessing. He's a worthy man. The Jews saw themselves that way. Remember the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector as they go to pray that Jesus tells in Luke 18. The Pharisee comes and he says, I thank you that I'm not like other men, but I do this and I do this and I do this. I do all these good things. And what does a tax collector do? He just cries out for mercy. That's it. Hypocrites are those who are so sure that God owes them something. That they come as if they deserve something. The humble, like this centurion, are those who know they deserve nothing and come to God with all their need. Looking for all of God's mercy. You may say and feel I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy to come to Jesus. Or I've done so much wrong. Or so many are my sins. I mean even for me personally. Uh, what time is it? It is 11:04. About an hour and a half ago, I got impatient with one of my kids. And sinned against them. I'm not I'm not worthy. So many are my sins. So many are our sicknesses and our afflictions. So many are our sufferings. So many are our wrongs. I'm not worthy. I don't deserve to come. But while you may not be worthy, none of us are. We are all needy. We are all needy. That's what the tax collector acknowledged. That's what the centurion felt. I'm not worthy, but I am needy. And that's all we have to bring. That's all that we have to bring. Our need. Where we have nothing to bring but need, God delights to give mercy. He is the one, we sing this, who welcomes the weakest, the vilest, and the poor. Because though our sins are many, his mercy is more. So we can, just like the centurion, we can come to him, appealing to him, acknowledging our need, and trust in him. Because Jesus is the one who holds all power and goodness. He is the one that with a word can heal. I was affected earlier as we were singing that he's our strong defender of our weary hearts. We have many of us. If we don't have a weary heart right now, we're going to have a weary heart soon. But he is our hope in the midst of affliction, when tides of sorrow arise. He's our song when enemies surround us. He's our joy in the midst of trials that seem to abound. And he is faithful in the darkness of our night. I love the the picture of faith that this centurion gives us. He's content with but a word. And thanks be to God we have his word that sustains us, that speaks to us. And is God's word not enough for you? I read this. I shared it with uh, Brandon on Friday, Brandon Averill on Friday. And it was from uh, Thomas Manton. He's just talking about the sufficiency of God's care for us. Thomas Manton was a pastor who lived in the 1600s and pastored in England. He says this, We have no reason to doubt of his care, protection, and merciful disposal of us. There is no want, but he can easily supply it. And he points to Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. There is no pain or suffering, but he can easily mitigate or remove it. We just saw two examples of this in Matthew 8. There's no danger so great from which he is not able to deliver you. Think about stories that fill the Old Testament and the New, but the Old Testament. Think about Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego as they're thrown into the fiery furnace. A danger so great, but God is able to deliver. Manton goes on, Where can we be so safe as in the love of And covenant of such an almighty Saviour. Brothers and sisters, get but this imprinted upon your hearts, and it will produce a strong and steadfast confidence in Him. So may we be content and satisfied to rest and trust in the good promises of God that are revealed in His Word. Because His Word it's it's effective, it's efficacious, it doesn't return void. He is the one who rules and reigns from everlasting to everlasting. So regardless of what we face, whether it's prosperity right now and peace, or whether it be sorrow and suffering and disillusionment and confusion, know that God is the one who holds all things in his hands. He is the omnipotent one, the one who has all power. He is the omniscient one who has all knowledge Your afflictions, your sufferings, your situation is not outside of what he sees. So come to him. Bring your need to him and trust that he is the one who invites you to come and he will give you rest. May we be content with the words he has spoken. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for speaking to us in your word. Thank you that we have the gift of your revelation that, that tells us who you are, that shows us what you've done. And Lord, would you give us the faith of the centurion, who just asks for, for but a word, who only brings his need and receives your your all-sufficiency. Lord, may we receive your sufficiency. May we recognize that indeed there is no one like you. Lord, we love you. May we trust in you with all our heart, soul, mind and strength. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.